0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words,
0: less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No,
1: it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing.
0: Now, if you're a regular listener to the Al Franken podcast, you know that we don't have guests back if they were a shitty guest. So you can be confident that this is a good one. Adam, of course, is amazing. He was the manager of the first impeachment of then-President Donald Trump, that one for shaking down the new president of Ukraine, a guy named uh, Vladimir Zelensky. There was active fighting between Ukraine and Russia at the time. In eastern Ukraine, Congress had passed a uh, $391 million package of military equipment and other assistance with bipartisan support that uh, Trump had frozen. At least 25 Ukrainians died in uh, the fighting in, in the weeks that followed, according to an investigation at the time, by the Los Angeles Times. Schiff, I thought, uh did an amazing job in that impeachment trial. E- every time he got up, I was amazed at how brilliant he was. I-, I sometimes, other members of the team were good, but I always just wanted him to be the guy in there. I-, I compared this, you know, I'm a big football fan, big Vikings fan, and I've always thought, you know, I don't care. If Justin Jefferson got a concussion, I just want him back in. If Schiff had gotten a concussion, I would have just wanted him. I wanted him making the argument all the time. Anyway, Schiff is now running for the Senate to fill Dianne Feinstein's seat. He would make a terrific addition to the Senate. Of course, he was chairman of the House Intelligence Committee for 10 years. Speaker McCarthy tossed him. Uh, we we uh, talk about that in our conversation. We have a wide-ranging discussion that we recorded a few weeks ago that I know you'll enjoy. I, I don't know if you're able to watch... Of the Daily Show this past week, where I hosted for four nights, I was I was nervous going in, but I had a lot of fun, and the shows turned out really well. I think, and um, the folks over at the Daily Show are, are true professionals, and I just can't thank them enough. Of course, the week had started out uh, a couple days after Trump had announced that he was going to be indicted on Tuesday. Turns out, oddly, that that wasn't the case. He he did it again. You know, he proved again that he has a a kind of a weird form of intelligence, a, a perverse form of intelligence, because that was that was a brilliant move because it rallied his supporters. It rallied Republican office holders behind him. Uh, Speaker McCarthy said that Trump was the victim of an outrageous abuse of power by a radical D.A. On our side, uh, pundits were critical, saying that this you know, is the least meaningful charge of all the allegations against Trump, and could make all future charges against him uh, look politically motivated. Thing is, bribing Stormy Daniels, or at least let me say, allegedly uh, bribing Stormy Daniels, was arguably what tipped the election. Which you remember, Trump was able to win by taking Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and Pennsylvania by just seventy thousand votes, and. Judd Legum, who writes the uh, incredibly valuable newsletter, Popular Information, has made this point so well. Because this bribe happened right after the Access Hollywood tape came out, and Trump's sexual mores were suddenly at the center of this incredibly closely contested election, and Trump desperately, desperately needed to change the subject before the election. And Legum lays out the history of this. Trump met Stormy Daniels at a celebrity golf tournament, of course, in 2006. That's the famous picture of them together. She says he invited her back to his room and told her that he could put her on his hit NBC show, The Apprentice. That that sounds like him. Then she says they had a sexual encounter, uh, which he denies but it sounds like him. Afterwards, Daniels says he would call her and invite her to other events, including the 2007 launch of Trump Vodka. Now, Daniels didn't start trying to sell the story to media outlets until 2011, when uh, Trump started making news by saying that President Obama was very likely born in Kenya He said he had sent investigators to Hawaii and what they found was amazing, but he didn't say what those amazing things were, but the hint was there was no birth certificate. Now, by the way, for listeners of the Al Franken podcast, I think you know that Donald Trump has a history of lying. We've established that here on the podcast, and that's one of the services we've provided here through our journalistic diligence. Anyway. Stormy Daniels shopped the story and gave an extensive interview to uh, the magazine Life and Style. I'm not familiar with the magazine, but she gave uh, an interview to Life and Style in exchange for $15,000. But fucking Life and Style had the journalistic integrity to contact the Trump organization for a comment. And Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, a Michael Cohen threatened to sue them, so life and style killed the story, and they didn't, they didn't pay her. Daniels then started to shop the story again in 2016 when Trump became the nominee, Republican nominee for president of the United States, but she didn't get any offers, but that changed in October when the Access Hollywood tape came out. Daniels' agent went to the National Enquirer. Now, what the agent and Daniels didn't know was that the publisher of the National Enquirer, David Pecker, had reached a secret agreement with uh, Trump and Cohn at the beginning of the Trump campaign to work together to catch and kill negative stories about Trump. The editor of the Enquirer, a guy named uh, Dylan Howard, reached a tentative agreement uh, to pay Daniels $120,000 for her story. Now, Pecker had recently... (laughs) paid Karen McDougal, a former uh, Playmate of the Year, $150,000 for her story about allegedly uh, having an affair with Trump and, and, of course, killed that. Well, Pecker didn't want to lay out the cash for, for uh, Stormy Daniels, and Howard, the editor, told Cohen that he'd have to find the money himself. And Cohen conferred with Trump and Pecker and negotiated a $130,000 deal For uh, Daniel's silence. Then on October 25th, 2016, two weeks before the election, Daniels hadn't received the money yet. And her attorney threatened to go public, not just about the affair, but Trump's attempt to buy her silence. So Cohen, after conferring with Trump, withdrew $131,000 from his home equity line of credit and Transferred it to a shell company, which transferred $130,000 to Daniel's lawyer. Conan Trump went to great pains to hide Trump's involvement in the non disclosure agreement. Trump was referred to as David Dennison. And then Dennison, I, I mean Trump, was elected president a few days later. Now, I don't know the legal theory that Bragg will or will not. Uh, be prosecuting under. uh, But this was a big deal. Uh, This determined that election. But for the Stormy Daniels deal, he would not have been elected. Now, I'm, of course, waiting for Georgia and Jack Smith for other indictments. But uh, Trump, you know, helped himself last week in his own perverse way and may well be the Republican nominee in 24. And I discussed this with Lindsey Graham, who is my my first guest on The Daily Show. You voted to certify. Mm -hmm. We, from everything that's come out, we know that he was told over and over again by his, anyone who had any credibility, he lost. How then can you want a guy who allowed us to go
1: through this violent, Insurrection. Well, let me just say this. The other side of the story is that when President Trump was president, I like the policies of Trump, and at the end of the day, he's got to prove to people, not me, that he's able to lead us again, and that will be a challenge for him, and that'll be a challenge for Biden to say, give me four more years after the last four. We'll see what happens.
0: Well, <clears throat> I think Biden wins that, but we don't Let's have bet. to say yes Can or we n- bet? Yeah, how much? 20 bucks. <laughs>
1: Listen, I know you, you you think Trump's horrible for the country and a lot of people believe that he can fix the problems that we're suffering under now. But here's the good news. We'll have an election and they will decide. Yep. <clears throat> That's, it.
0: That's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Lindsay, of course, voted to acquit Donald Trump in both impeachment trials. We'll be right back with my conversation with Adam Schiff, the manager of the first one, and now candidate for the U.S. Senate in California. It's a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language The second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means. That means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Well, I, I guess I want to talk in in like three tranches here. The crazy House of Representatives. Uh, you're not being on Intel, which is insane to me. And uh, But that means I also want to talk to you about Ukraine and China. Also, would love to talk to you about the January 6th committee or, or what's go- the committee has gone, I suppose. But, uh, you know, what you see going forward in terms of prosecution there. And then I also want to talk about the debt ceiling. <laughs> it's come up. So I see you're, you're smiling. <laughs> it's good that this
2: is a five hour interview because we should be able to cover all that
0: yes yes that's that's right that well that's my strategy for keeping you on okay so to me i understand why you're not on the intel committee because it was just it's revenge right that's
2: what we call it right uh it was a revenge but also a revenge for removing the marjorie taylor greens and paul gosars for uh encouraging violence against their colleagues yeah those are equivalents. yes very equivalent and uh Uh, And in the case of of those uh, removals, they were bipartisan. Uh, This wasn't even subject to a vote. It was just subject to Kevin McCarthy's whim. But it was also, I think, a fundraising device for McCarthy. Uh, He sent out fundraising emails, of course, you know, encouraging people to press a button, click to donate and remove me from the committee. Uh, I am apparently fodder for the right wing base uh, on Fox and elsewhere. But it's part fundraising, part payback, and part this is what he needed to do to get the votes to be speaker. He made a bunch of promises, and apparently my removal from the Intel Committee uh, was one of them.
0: Why overlook any chance to damage our government and the House of Representatives than to take off the, the senior? Were you senior member of the committee? And yes. Certainly. Yes. As, now, as chair, now, of course, you have staff. And and you you must be still steeped in this stuff. You don't stop.
2: Yes. And, and I still attend the the broader House briefings, uh, classified briefings on, for example, the surveillance balloons uh, and those issues. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, more than just sort of the pettiness uh, of what McCarthy did and um If you look at uh, his decision, which was unprecedented to decide for the other party who the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee could be, uh, he also, uh, for much the same reasons, formed a select committee on the so-called weaponization of the federal government, which by its rules is allowed to access classified information. The combination of these two things, sort of mucking with the Intelligence Committee, but also creating this new, you know, sort of bastard of a committee means that the intelligence community isn't really going to want to trust Congress with intelligence. The community itself, the different agencies, you know, they have to make decisions about how much they share with Congress. Some of those are mandatory uh, and some of those are discretionary. And to the degree that the community has discretion, they're going to be reluctant to share it uh, with a, you know, a process run by Kevin McCarthy uh, or Jim Jordan, for that matter, in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, So it will impair the ability of Congress to make good policy decisions if it's not getting all the information it should.
0: It, it's really very sad because, first and foremost, we should be considering the security of our country. And now you must have uh, former colleagues from the committee, Democrat and, and and Republican, who are sharing information with you in, that they can share with you.
2: Uh, you know, they really can't share what they learn in committee briefings uh, any more than I could. Uh, I can request uh, access to particular information, but generally, uh, I think the access I'll have to these uh, important issues will be through the, the House wide briefings, uh, as well as what I now learn on the Judiciary Committee, most of which uh, won't be classified. But a lot of the foreign policy decisions, a lot of the national security issues, uh, I'll be armed with the information in the public sector. And while I wish it could be more, That's what most members of Congress uh, have to use to make decisions.
0: Well, that's just infuriating. Must be infuriating for you, but it's just infuriating for me and should infuriate everyone in our country, because
2: how how many years had you served on the committee? Um, For over a decade. Uh, And, you know, as you know, that committee is one where it takes years to come up to speed because by almost by definition, you can't know much about the operation of the agencies before you get there. So there's a steep learning curve. And I'd like to think that I was uh, pretty good at it, uh, at yep. analyzing the issues and bringing about reforms, protecting the country. But there are other obviously other priorities for Kevin McCarthy and uh, finding people to be good at, at what they do on committees is not really on his list.
0: It seems like for McCarthy to become speaker, he boxed himself in in such a way that as it was going down, it looked either like somebody on the far right side was brilliant or that McCarthy played it absolutely crazily wrong. Were
2: both correct? I think both were correct. Uh, And I have to tell you that as I sat there on the House floor watching the endless votes for speaker. And uh, Matt Gates took to the floor to begin tearing into Kevin McCarthy. One of my staff, knowing of my great f- affinity for the Big Lebowski, uh, sent me a line from the Big Lebowski that was never more perfectly applied than it was in that moment to Matt Gates tearing into Kevin McCarthy. And the line is, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. Well, it, it wouldn't be so bad if
0: it was, you know, an asshole from Animal House or from The Big Lebowski, but it's the Speaker of the House. And as you say, they've created these committees with with people in in important positions in these committees with subpoena, with unprecedented subpoena power. The the weaponization of the government committee, what, what have they looked at thus far? And what have they found? (laughs) Well,
2: I don't don't think they've found anything uh, other than the fact that Jonathan Turley is not a particularly good witness. Um, But uh, no, they they start out by bringing in some of the most extreme conspiracy theorists, along with your former colleague, Ron Johnson, uh, to testify like they're some kind of experts. Uh, You know, these are people that came up with deep state conspiracy theories not just about the FBI, but about the pandemic, uh, about the vaccines in the pandemic, uh, you name it. But to to give you a kind of vivid illustration of now who's running the asylum in the Judiciary Committee this week. And and when I was kicked off of Intel, Hakeem Jeffries asked me to take his position, a senior position on the Judiciary Committee, now chaired by Jim Jordan. We were adopting the rules for the committee, which is usually pretty pro forma, But they loaded these rules with a whole bunch of deep state conspiracy theories uh, stated as fact and then charged the committee with overseeing these so-called facts. Uh, You know, things like uh, the conservative bias of the agents at at the FBI or uh, the effort to go after the conservatives in the FBI. You know, anyone who's ever worked with the FBI and I've worked with the FBI now for more than 30 years since I was a, a federal prosecutor, I would hardly uh, characterize the FBI as a bastion of liberalism. But that was sort of the intimation uh, of these rules. I offered an amendment to make sure that we oversee the rise in domestic violent terrorism, mm-hmm. characterized by anti-AAPI hate, anti-Semitism and white nationalism, which they vigorously opposed, including one Republican who said uh, that basically accused me of, of being woke. Uh, and that's all this was about, even though this is the predominant terrorist threat the FBI cites. Well, Christopher Ray will
0: say that, right, that they're organized. I mean, we've seen it. We we saw it
2: January 6th. Exactly. You're prompting one of the Republicans to ask, what does AAPI stand for? And then when he learned, uh, uh, once again, accusing me of being woke. Pacific Islander is, is a woke term. I guess it is. Um, but I <laughs> suggested right. that- hey, maybe the problem, if they're not aware of this dramatic rise in in hate and and domestic violent extremism, maybe they are sleeping. Maybe they do need to wake up.
0: Okay, this is worse than I thought. I I thought I was going to start this conversation and and not feel this bad this quickly. (laughs) Uh, So can I get your take on uh, let's start with Ukraine in terms of support for this? Uh, there's the Marjorie Taylor Greene and the, the Gates. They're against this, right? They,
2: they don't support our effort there. They certainly don't appear to. And I think what is driving it, uh, and I know this is going to sound like an oxymoron, but the, the intellectual thought leader of the mm-hmm. Republican Party now and has been for years is Tucker Carlson. Uh, he has the biggest audience and he goes on his show and does nothing but broadcast Kremlin talking points that Ukraine's not a real country, that we should be with the Russians because they have the oil, etc. And, you know, Republicans listen to him because their voters listen to him. It leaves me deeply concerned about uh, the Republicans going weak in the knees when it comes to supporting Ukraine. And we're starting to see that in some of the comments of of Republican conference members during hearings, as we did this week, uh, when they're questioning our support for Ukraine I mean, it's certainly appropriate, I think, to make sure that the the aid, the assistance that we give Ukraine is well utilized. I think that's perfectly appropriate, but it's going beyond that to call into question the United States' commitment to a fellow democracy and to an international rules-based order that has served our country phenomenally well ever since World War II. Uh, If Russia can be successful in essentially absorbing a huge chunk of Ukrainian territory, uh, in remaking the map uh, in Europe using military force, then then China will be encouraged to potentially invade uh, Taiwan. Uh, Turkey will, uh, and Azerbaijan may be further encouraged to invade Armenia. Uh, I mean, it, there's no end. To what the autocrats around the world will take away from a Russian success in Ukraine. What,
0: what, what percentage of the Republican caucus is, is beginning to move in that direction? Is it is it noticeable or is because it seems to me that I know Zelensky got a, a tremendous welcome and the reaction seemed to be very supportive. And it, it seems clear to me and, and, and to a lot of Republicans. Right that this is a moment that we we have to uh, respond to. Otherwise, uh, Russia will and and Putin will continue.
2: You know, I I still think that there is a broad and bipartisan agreement around support for Ukraine. But I am worried about the trend line because the trend line uh, is Republicans sort of peeling off of that support. You know, Putin made a, a whole host of miscalculations in the run up to the war. He miscalculated Ukrainians' will to fight. He miscalculated Zelensky as a leader. He miscalculated his own military forces capability. Wow, Wow, did Uh, he? Yes, he sure did. He (laughs) miscalculated our ability to unite Europe and other parts of the world uh, around sanctions, uh, punishing sanctions. But the one calculation that he made that it's too early to tell whether he calculated correctly or not is the calculation that Ukraine – Matters more to him and to Russia than it does to the United States and the West, uh, and that he can essentially wear us down. And he has to be proven wrong about that as well. And, and that means that we have to maintain our, our support and stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine. And every time, you know, Putin uh, and the Kremlin watch the US Congress, they must take some solace in the number of Republicans that are now beginning to question our military support for Ukraine. So I think right now we still have a strong bipartisan majority. I hope that continues. I'm certainly going to be doing my part to make sure that continues. We touched
0: a little on, on China uh, and the balloon and uh, the other objects. They're our number one trading partner, right? Yes. Is there a, a danger of Escalation here
2: that doesn't serve anybody. You know, and I should say probably our, Europe may be our top trading partner as a block. China uh, sure. China's obviously a very important trading partner. Uh, Canada, Mexico, also uh, very uh, significant trading partners. And, you know, this is the challenge with China. Uh, that is, if China invaded Taiwan and we were to impose the same sanctions on China, we have imposed on Russia it would have a much more substantial impact on our own economy. Indeed, you know, one of the challenges we've had with Europe over the Russia sanctions is making sure that, that Europe understands that we're willing to uh, absorb the, the costs as well as Europe, that we're not basically only asking Europe to sacrifice to defend our fellow democracy. But, uh, but the challenges are much greater with, with China in the degree to which our economies are intertwined. And the the challenges are much greater with China because China is also a rising power while Russia is a declining power. Uh, And we see each and every year China's influence around the world through its Belt and Road initiative uh, increase, uh, buying friends and winning influence around the world. We see it in the improvements China's making to its uh, program in space, uh, the military assets it has in space or the naval forces it has on the sea, the degree to which it is militarizing the South China Sea. So this is a very challenging rival power and is only going to become more challenging. Uh, And we have to somehow navigate that uh, conflict without it becoming a a hot conflict, uh, but also making sure that we continue to uh, protect and grow the American economy.
0: What we do in, in Ukraine is, to a large degree, a signal to them about Taiwan. And what, what are they looking at the Chinese? What are they looking at in terms of our commitment to Ukraine? Now, to me in Ukraine, this, it's an, a, a tremendously valuable investment that we're making. We don't have any troops on the ground. There are a lot of Russian troops dying. Their military is being gutted, you know, and we, we have this in, uh, whole coalition w- with us. This seems to be, we're getting a lot of value there.
2: Well, you know, I would say that, you know, our first priority in Ukraine is defending our national security interests. Uh, And part and parcel of our national security interests is defending our fellow democracies. Um, You know, we're not at some impossible remove from the rest of the world. Uh, If countries can attack fellow democracies and get away with it, uh, then we're not invulnerable at the end of the day uh, to being drawn into a broader conflict. Uh, so we have a national security interest there. We have a humanitarian interest there, and and yes, it is certainly having the effect of uh, crippling the Russian military. And I think it's a terrible tragedy that uh, Russians are going home in body bags. Yep. Uh, and that's on Vladimir Putin. Yep. Uh, and and probably you know the way this war comes to an end sooner than later is the way that uh, the Soviet uh, occupation of Afghanistan came to an end, and that was Russian mothers. Uh, losing their sons
0: that was at a different time in the history of the soviet union which uh, was that that was gorbachev time right i think putin looked at that and said i'm not going to let that happen if i'm and he's if anything has made russia a much more totalitarian state just in the last year
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think there are, are some significant differences between now and then, but there are, are also some commonalities. The differences are, are the ones you mentioned. Putin has really consolidated power, uh, eliminated most dissent, and there's also a much tighter grip on information now. The, we, you know, we talk a lot about the great China firewall. Well, there's also a great Russian firewall uh, where they keep out a lot of uh, information that uh, the Kremlin doesn't want the Russian people to see so they have they have new techniques to constrict information. But what does remain the same is at the end of the day, you can't hide the fact that sons are not coming home. Uh, I mean, you may delay their finding out, but you, at the end of the day, can't hide how many losses. How many people are coming home to Russia maimed? How many families will have an empty seat at the table? Sure. Uh, now it, it took ten years for that pressure to uh, result in change in the Soviet Union. But they've lost more in the first year war than they did in those 10 years. Tragically, though, and this is another similarity, the Russians have historically been very good at using their people as cannon fodder and enduring the pain of that. Uh, So I I don't want to overstate the matter, but but I think what ultimately brings this conflict to an end, and it may look like a kind of inconclusive end, is the Russian casualties.
0: I hope you're right. But my, my fear is, is that he's nailed down on this country. so hard with such fear. On the other hand, he's counting on us folding if, if this just keeps going on and on and on and on. You're chairman of the Intel committee, but is, is that a danger? Is that part of his calculation?
2: Uh, yes, it, it, it is certainly, you know, the couple of profound dangers. One is that he just keeps uh, pushing Russian troops into the meat grinder. Uh, and there are a lot more Russians than there are Ukrainians. You know, the terrible tragedy is, well, yes, you know, we're denuding the Russian military of their ability to, to make war in the future. It's also the fact that Ukraine is playing a terrible toll uh, of their own. But he has staked so much of this. You know, his idea of Russia, his idea of himself, his his whole notion of being the next Peter the Great, um, he's all in on this. And the only thing I think that changes that dynamic, if it can be changed, uh, is the the mounting casualties and Russian public opinion turning against him. We can help with that. Uh, We can help by assisting Russians in getting good information about how badly the war is going, uh, about the war crimes that are being committed in their names. We can help Russians get access to VPNs so that they can securely get information without Russian authorities knowing about it. Uh, there are things that, that I think we can do to help uh, that we really need to be pursuing, because one important front in this war is the information front.
0: Okay, well, tell, tell me how we do that, and then we'll tell the Russians uh, what we're doing. <laughs>
1: we're
0: going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Adam Schiff.
2: and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at
1: Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation.
0: And we're back with Adam Schiff. Let's, let's move back to the January 6th, where it's moving forward, where there looks like there may be prosecutions or not. We see the Fulton County grand jury, the the jury member, I think, spoke a little bit too much out of turn. Am
2: I right? Yes. I mean, they're not supposed to discuss what they're doing. Uh, now, uh, I think on the plus side, on the fortunate side of this, uh, that grand jury has, I believe, finished its work. Uh, that's not the charging grand jury. Yes. So there there wouldn't be any taint on a charging decision. There'll be a new grand jury and panel to make those decisions. But yeah, I think they're supposed to generally keep that confidential.
0: Okay. Do you have any idea what the timing of that's going to be? I mean, it seems like a pretty open and shut case in certain pieces of this, but it seems like there's also going to be a lot of other charges that we know nothing about that, that how many witnesses did they have? How long did this take? There's going to be a lot coming out of here that we don't had not seen before, obviously.
2: I would certainly think so. And, and I would imagine that if they had a will to do it, the Fulton County DA could move pretty quickly. They wouldn't need to, uh, as far as I understand the process in Georgia, they wouldn't need to bring in all the witnesses they brought before the last grand jury right. and have them testify again. They could introduce the transcripts to the sure. grand jury uh, so they could read the transcripts. Uh, there'll be agents that provide affidavits that summarize uh, other evidence they've gathered in the uh, investigation. Um, it still will take time, but it w- wouldn't necessarily take that much time. Well, that was my
0: understanding. They don't they, no. they don't need the witnesses. They, the witnesses have testified. It's there. You know, they don't have to go through all of it. They go through the part that the
2: other grand jury has distilled for them, I would think. Right. I think that's right. I give enormous credit to the Fulton County DA uh, that has been you know, so aggressive in conducting this investigation. The, the Justice Department, on the other hand, waited so long to begin this facet of the investigation. The Congress was way out ahead of it. The local DA in Fulton County was way out ahead of the Justice Department. I find that pretty inexplicable. Uh, You know, coming out of the Justice Department, I was there almost six years uh, way back in the day. The idea that a local D.A. or Congress could investigate something more quickly than the Justice Department uh, when it involved a matter of of federal and national significance, pretty unthinkable. Um, But I think it was the product of both the the extraordinary caution of the leadership of the Justice Department, but also that they took an approach to the investigation that really didn't fit the crime. The The bottom up exactly exactly
0: yeah i remember a press conference that the attorney general held where he said sort of he sort of defended or said we're going to go from the bottom up and that they'll point up and i guess that's certain kind of uh investigations you do that but it it seems like it was ill-advised
2: yeah i mean you you could still use a bottom-up approach if you're starting from the bottom of each and every uh, line of effort to overturn the election, but they're different lines of effort. Uh, you know, they all culminate on January 6th, but the fake elector plot is not something, for example, that someone breaking into the Capitol on January 6th is necessarily going to know about. One of the uh, Proud Boys uh, charged with seditious conspiracy isn't necessarily going to know about the president's phone call with the secretary of state in Georgia. So you need multiple lines of investigation uh, being conducted contemporaneous. That's Contemporaneously, that's what we did in the January 6th committee. Um, even if you do start with lower level witnesses in each of those uh, elements. But to start with only one, uh, knowing that they're only going to have limited information about other lines of effort uh, just doesn't work or results in a very drawn out investigation.
0: Well, speaking of the phone call, um, how clear is that that that's a crime? It's on tape. He says, I need you to find 11,780." Votes or one more than we have, then he threatens him and his lawyer too.
2: How is that not a crime? Well, I think if we're anyone else, it would have already been thoroughly investigated and charged by now. It's it's goes beyond the phone call because you know one of the things you have to demonstrate uh, in any criminal case except one that that is strict liability, where it doesn't matter what your intent is, you you generally have to show what's the mens rea, what were they thinking? And here, we know that the president before that phone call is told repeatedly that the allegations of fraud in Georgia are BS. They're simply not true. Uh, And so it's not like he goes into that call not knowing from his own top Justice Department people that what he's about to tell the Secretary of State in Georgia is a lie.
0: Doesn't he say in the thing I won by four hundred thousand votes at one point? <laughs> I mean, he he is making shit up all the way through.
2: Yes, but but what is most blatant really is is when he exact asks for the exact number of votes that he needs to beat Biden, not one more, just the exact number of votes he needs to beat Biden. That's pretty compelling proof. How hard is
0: that? Give me a break. All well, it is eleven thousand seven hundred eighty. You don't have to do 11,781. Isn't the intent there? Isn't it clear? Isn't it
2: obvious? Well, it is. You know, I keep coming back to two two other vignettes in the January 6th investigation. One is Donald Trump on the phone with his top Justice Department officials. And he goes through these allegations of fraud, including Georgia. Uh, You know, what about dead people voting in Michigan? And he's told, no, there's no there there. What about this? What about that? What about ballots of suitcases of ballots in Fulton County? He's told by the top people, it's all BS. And what is his answer? Just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. This is what he says. I, I mean, you know, as a former prosecutor, I don't know how you find more compelling evidence of a criminal intent than that. Uh, You're told by your own top people it's BS. And your response is, just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me. Uh, And, of course, we see this played out in in various ways uh, leading up to January 6th. And then on January 6th, this is the other thing that really stands out to me. He's there on the mall. He's upset with how the photo looks because there aren't enough people inside the ellipse. He's told, no, there's an unusual problem at the metal detectors, which is not the same problem they have at the rallies, at the rallies, there are long lines of people to get through the metal detectors. But here, the problem is people won't go through the metal detectors and they won't go through them because there aren't and they don't want their weapons taken away. Yeah, but they're not here to hurt me. That's that's exactly right. Take the effing down the effing mags. They're not here to hurt me.
0: And, and he knows and they're armed. Go to the Capitol. And then he tells to the them capital. to go to the Capitol and fight like hell. Yep. What does that mean? You know, I I saw like, I don't know, about a month ago, there was this uh, the Berkeley Research Group. Did you see that thing? I don't
2: think so. The
0: the Trump team had hired the Berkeley Research Group to find anything. And it didn't leak until like a month ago that they didn't find anything. (laughs) And they kept telling the campaign, no, none of this. There's nothing. It couldn't have been clearer. He 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 knew, and he said he knew. Right, that that yeah. was a testimony that he said we can't tell people I
2: lost. It's embarrassing. Uh, there are a number of times where he acknowledges uh, he lost. I mean, this is the the sort of the constant dilemma with Trump, which is does he really believe his own lies? Uh, that's impossible. You know, I, I suppose anything is possible with him. What what I what I think and and. Uh, uh, obviously, this goes beyond the realm of, of uh, legislation and in, into psychology. But this is a guy who lies all the time. And I think he views space, his view of the world is the truth is for suckers. The truth is for losers. Uh, and anyone who doesn't lie as baldly as him uh, is a loser. You know, in a way, I think he he and Bob Mueller had had opposite like mirror image blind spots. In the case of Donald Trump, he, he's such a liar, he thinks everyone else lies the way he does. Uh, in the case of Bob Mueller, he's such a person of integrity that I think he couldn't imagine being betrayed by someone like Bill Barr, uh, that it would be unthinkable to a person of that kind of integrity that other people like uh, his longtime colleague and friend Bill Barr would betray him and lie about his report and his work. But, but I think in Trump's world, you're just a sucker if you acknowledge the truth, you make your own truth by just repeating a lie ad nauseum.
0: And it's also obvious that a large percentage of Americans have have bought a hook line and sinker. That is what's scary.
2: Yes, and, and and Al, I have to tell you one other thing on on the subject of the psychology here, which I, I find endlessly striking. When we subpoenaed Donald Trump to testify, he sent us this lengthy diatribe. It was like, I don't know, 13, 14 pages. And in the course of this diatribe, he repeats a point that he he has made frequently, which I think is so illuminating into his his very scattered mind, uh, his very fractured mind. And that is, he bemoans the point that he still hasn't gotten enough credit for the size of the crowd on January 6th. In what kind of a malignantly narcissistic world do you have to live in to think that the problem of January 6th is nobody fully appreciates just how big the crowd was on the day of the insurrection. Um, but he repeatedly makes this point, And in that diatribe, he even sends pictures of the crowd on January 6th to prove his point that uh, the insurrection was actually much larger than we thought. And, and darn it, he can get credit. Especially
0: after we uh, told him they didn't have to go through the magnetometers. Yeah then it really got big and uh, my january 6th crowd was bigger than obama's january 6th crowd (laughs) oh my lord uh well thank you uh good luck in your uh in your in your run uh i know there's other great candidates in that but uh, you would make a fabulous united states senator
2: Thank you very much, and uh, great pleasure to be with you again. I look forward to being back.
0: Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.